This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today I'm digging into This Working Life's archives because both of my producers have gone down with a dreaded lurgy this week. So I decided what better time to revisit biohacking our way to better health. Have you heard of biohacking? In my case, it's where I use science and technology to optimise my performance at work. So basically, to avoid falling over due to ill health. But now I'm up to 20 biohacks a day. And I need to know which of these have solid science behind them and which are a waste of time. Because frankly, I need to ditch a few so that I actually have some time for work. So I've invited some fellow biohackers and a couple of scientists to stress test the biohacks for me. When I met Diane McGrath at a conference in 2019, she was an astronaut candidate with the now-defunct Mars One program. We bonded over butter coffee and our passion for biohacking. Diane uses a cold therapy called cryotherapy to help her physically and psychologically reboot. But it's not for everyone. If you have a medical condition like hypertension, heart disease, seizures, anemia, pregnancy and claustrophobia, you should not use cryotherapy. We'll dig more into the health implications in just a moment, but first, let's find out what it's actually like. I dropped in on one of Diane's sessions. I do cryo usually once a month. I do it as part of a regular, I guess, a maintenance routine. So I think it's like some businesses give their staff like an RDO, which is a fantastic thing, a rest day. And I think it's really important to do that, to structure in recovery during your week or during your month or whatever. And I definitely do it as part of my recovery protocol. When I come back from overseas trips, I'll do a double cryo session for sure, It mixed in with a few other things. I tend to find I don't get jet lag. Zero jet lag. Thanks for putting your body on the line for us. <laughs> no worries. So we're here in the actual cryo chamber entry area. Diane, talk us through what happens next. Next, uh, Natel will hand me the earmuffs, uh, my mittens and a face mask. And that's to make sure that those parts of my body are covered and protected when I'm in extreme cold. Because I have to go into two different rooms. I'll first go into like an antechamber where the temperature's like about minus 60, is that right? Minus 60. And I'm there for just a few seconds, really, like a handful of seconds. Oh, mate, okay, 30 seconds. It seems to go a lot faster. Anyway, and then I have to go through another door into what looks like a, a giant deep freezer. There are no carcasses in there. There will be me. That is the only carcass in there today. Uh, and that is at minus 110 for about um, two and a half, three minutes. I experience the cold when I'm in there as energy and not as and not as something to fight, but to bring inside me because I want my core to get cold, so I want it to get in, and so I try and I try and use my breath work to, to integrate everything into me. Di enters the first chamber. That's cold. I could feel that. There she is. Now she's in the main chamber. 
Uh, so the main room where it's negative, uh, below negative 110 degrees Celsius. We've just passed the halfway mark. She's looking good. Very cool, calm and collected. <laughs> it does actually become quite meditative. It's still cold though. Don't know if your body really does get used to it. It won't get used to it, but the mind becomes more familiar with the discomfort, similar to exercising or fasting. Yeah, no matter how many times you do it, it will trigger that same response. Di emerges from the chamber to thaw out, but this isn't the only time she uses cold to reboot. I tend to do this sort of stuff even at home, like I'll have a cold shower, I'll finish my hot showers with pure 100% just cold, um, and that's so I can get similar sorts of effects at home for free. And I get such an immense value being able to get my body this cold. Um, my knee improved dramatically, my range of motion, my ankle so much, cognitive function. So there's so many incredible benefits that I get from getting this cold. But you can get some by having just regular cold showers too. Catherine Robson is a non-executive director, entrepreneur and angel investor. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Lisa. You do cryotherapy twice a week. How did you first hear about it? So I heard about it on a health podcast that I listened to from the US. And I know in the States there are lots of practitioners who even do it up to once a day. And it just seemed like there was a lot of benefits for me as a busy person that I wanted to embrace in my own life. What was the effect on your cognitive performance at work then after doing cryotherapy? So I think the main impact for me is just a feeling of positivity about life generally. So <laughs> feeling... That it's not so cold outside. <laughs> so I think sometimes when you've got a lot on, you can feel bogged down. And so it actually was a feeling of lightness that... that things didn't seem so insurmountable and that you could tackle difficult problems. Um, also, I do suffer um, from that sort of fuzzy feeling sometimes, that feeling like life is behind a thick plate of glass. And brain, that brain fog. Brain fog, yeah. And so that really lifted it and, and it uh, lasted. So it wasn't just in the you know few hours after the session, it was for a period of time after that. Dr. Shona Hulson is a leading exercise recovery scientist who has been part of three Olympic campaigns. Hello, Shona. Hello, nice to be here. You've been listening to Diane McGrath and Catherine Robson, the high-performing athletes of their workplaces. Yes. What does the research say about cryotherapy in terms of physical recovery? Whole body cryotherapy may have a positive effect on reducing inflammation and reducing perception of soreness. But there's not a lot of scientific evidence around helping athletes perform, so helping them actually physically recover. But I should say that it is fairly early days in terms of the research in this area in athletes. So at the moment, it's a little bit hit and miss in terms of the quality of the research and what we actually know. So there's nothing really conclusive out there in the literature on whether it's something that you'd recommend to athletes to use. What is the difference between cryotherapy and using something like ice baths? The ice baths we have a lot more research on. They've been studied more, so we understand more about how they work. But ice baths, as they're water, um, you have the hydrostatic pressure of the water. So you get a lot of compressive effects of being in water, which can help um, really improve blood flow and return of the peripheral blood to the core, which is important. And we also know that water conducts heat about 25 
25 times greater than being in air. So I've been in a cryotherapy chamber, I've been in an ice bath and vastly different temperatures, but an ice bath of around about 15 degrees, you can feel very, very cold and get very powerful cooling effects. Shona, Catherine mentioned cognitive improvement and also emotional improvement. Is there any research to support this in terms of cryotherapy? Yeah, there's actually a little bit of research, in particular out of Poland. So Poland was one of the first places to introduce cryotherapy chambers for patients, typically for patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory concerns. Um, So there is a little bit of evidence about reducing depression and, and improving mood with regular use. And I must say most people that have cold exposure to a large degree, like in a chamber or an ice bath, generally do come out feeling quite refreshed and feeling quite good. So I think there's definitely some psychological aspects there. And we also know that a little bit of science around maybe there's some brain neurochemistry changing when you're exposed to cold. And what are some of the dangers of cryotherapy other than the ones I mentioned at the top of the show? There's a couple of aspects that we need to be cautious about, and it's different depending on the type of cryotherapy that you're utilising. So if you're um, utilising whole body cryotherapy where you're walking into the into the chambers, they tend to be a little bit safer because they don't um, have the direct contact of the evaporating liquid nitrogen onto the skin. So you tend to not have those sort of skin burns that you may see in the partial cryotherapy, which is almost like a cryotherapy sauna where the head is out. Um, So those ones tend to be a little bit more dangerous in terms of skin allergies or skin burns. But there has been a couple of cases overseas where people have unfortunately passed away in cryotherapy chambers and that can be from maybe potentially a gas leak, maybe that they have been not properly supervised and they've been trapped or locked in in one of the chambers. So, I mean, but essentially they can be very safe as long as they're supervised um, correctly and, and the proper precautions are taken. So Shona, in conclusion, do you think you can give us a cryotherapy pass or fail in terms of the research in helping us perform at work? I'd say in terms of research, fail, but I think we haven't got there yet in terms of catching up with the practice. And in practice, I would say that there's nothing that would suggest that it would be harmful or something that you wouldn't do if it was something that you were using and that you enjoy doing. I think the science will probably catch up to practice later on. Thanks, Shona. Next up, sleep apps. How can they help boost our performance? To tease this out for us is high-performing entrepreneur and non-executive director, Catherine Robson, and joining us as our scientific expert, Dr. Siobhan Banks, neuroscientist, sleep researcher from University of South Australia. Why is sleep so important for us to perform at our best at work, Siobhan? Yeah, sleep is really vital for all parts of, of our life. We we really see it as the the third pillar of health next to exercise and nutrition, but also, as you said, our, our cognitive performance. So if we have a bad night's sleep, yes. your memory goes and you're just sort of wandering around and a bit of a fuzz. Um, and, and we're not really entirely sure why sleep is so important, but the research suggests that important for recovery, and also for our memory consolidation. Catherine Robson, why did you start using sleep apps? One of the hardest times in my life was when I was running a business and I had really little kids and I just felt like I could never get enough sleep. Um, and I would 
try and gorge on sleep. So whenever I had the opportunity, I'd just try and sleep as much as I could and I wouldn't actually feel refreshed. Mm -hmm. And so it was more trying to put me in a regular rhythm of getting high quality sleep, including the component parts of sleep. So, you know, sleep's like everything. There's sort of good quality and poor quality sleep. So having a wearable device that gave me a bit more insight into not only the total length of time, but the component parts of sleep, so REM sleep and deep sleep, for example, and holding myself accountable to trying to go to bed at the same time in a regular routine, trying to do some things during the day that aid sleep. All of that was great to get me back onto a a sort of normal pattern and feeling healthy and vibrant at work. I find the insights invaluable. Siobhan, how accurate are sleep apps? They are getting a little bit better but a lot of them have never undergone any rigorous scientific evaluation and comparison to what we would refer to as the gold standard of testing, which is a sleep study in a lab. And so these apps can be out by quite a lot. Sometimes they are overestimating and sometimes they're underestimating um, the sleep time. And certainly the accuracy is highly variable around whether they're actually telling you the correct result around deep sleep or REM sleep or any of those components of sleep. You mentioned, so there's deep sleep, REM sleep and light sleep. Which one of these are critical and how much are we meant to get of each one? (laughs) All of them. So basically the important thing from sleep is the overall time. And so it's it's almost like a little tape that has to play out so that the whole amount of of sleep is is really important. But that amount of time can be split over the day. So for example, if you only manage to get six hours sleep in the night, a nap in the afternoon can help you greatly because it's sort of the overall amount of sleep that you get in the 24 hours. So it doesn't matter if I get six hours of, let's say, eight hours of sleep and uh, very little of that is deep sleep? We're biologically driven to have a certain amount of deep sleep. And unless you're going below four hours sleep a night, pretty much every night you will have around about four hours sleep of deep sleep. What are the key things then that you need to measure to determine good sleep? You mentioned that the gold standard is doing it in a lab, but what are you actually measuring there? Yeah, so we're measuring not only the length of sleep, but through the uh, the EEG, the electrodes that are applied to the scalp, that's measuring the little tiny electrical waves that the brain gives off when it's in its different stages of sleep. And so what we can see is these squiggly lines that, you know, we, we interpret on the screen as the electrical activity in the brain. They show uh, variations depending on if you're in deep sleep, light sleep or the REM sleep. And so what about other factors like body temperature and your heart rate and even snoring, which I know some apps might monitor? Where do they stand in determining good sleep? So when we go into deep sleep, our body is actually very, very relaxed. And so our heart rate drops, um, our breathing rate drops, and essentially we're completely disengaged from the outside world. So if you've ever carried a child who, you know, is in deep, deep sleep, they'll be very floppy, very relaxed. 
it's that complete disengagement with the outside world and it's it's often in in that stage of sleep that we it takes a long time for us to wake up to to an alarm for example so the body temperature and and heart rate really are indicative of the different stages of sleep if you're in dreaming sleep you're actually your your brain's very active because you're undergoing those dreams and thoughts and a lot of different mentation but your body is held very still deliberately so that you don't act out those dreams. So in different sleep stages, there is different amounts of temperature variation and heart rate variation that can be measured or these apps say that they're measuring them in order to help understand these different sleep stages. And so how do these wearable apps compare in terms of accuracy? There's no real studies that um, line them all up and compare them. And it's very hard for research to be done on a lot of the commercial grade apps because we, we don't know what the algorithms are within them. So some of the more research type devices and wearables allow scientists to understand the calculations that are made behind the app to get that data. Whereas some of the commercial ones, we don't know what is behind it. We don't know what the black box is, is <laughs> yeah. doing to interpret the data. So it's really hard to know. So all we can do is compare them to the gold standard and some are better than others. And how might an algorithm affect um, how it works for you? Well, for example, if you're someone that just naturally moves around in sleep a lot, but you're still asleep, the app might say that you're actually awake because its threshold for movement to suggest whether you're awake or asleep might be set quite low. Or uh, heart rate, for example, or your temperature. If it's a hot night, you might have a, um, a hotter bed environment and so your app is actually reading you as being in a different sleep stage than what you've actually been. So it's, it is it is those small variations that then can kick out the results to be more or less in one sleep stage than you actually have been. Catherine, can you give me an example of how monitoring your uh, sleep through these sleep apps has changed the way you do things? Yeah, so I think if I'm very sedentary during the day, if I fall into the habit of going onto my computer later in the evening, um, if I eat poorly during the day, I can really n notice that I don't sleep well. It shows up in my sleep score. No hiding. <laughs> exactly. So it does prompt better behaviour from me during the day to create the environment for good sleep. And look, I appreciate that maybe it's not 100% accurate, but I do see a correlation between when I get a better score to generally how I feel during the day. Siobhan, finally, when it comes to getting a better night's sleep for better performance at work, sleep apps, pass or fail? <laughs> oh, it's so hard for a scientist to be, you know, positive. I, I, look, I would say the way, way Catherine's using it is is exactly correct. So it's a it's a long term thing. She's not becoming obsessed about it, and it's helping her behaviours around her life. And I, and I think that's where it's a super success and so a big tick. Where it's a fail is where it starts to ruin your life, and you worry about not you know, your numbers and your scores and that the worry then contributes to not getting a good night's sleep and, and, and possibly going down the road of insomnia. So it's probably a little bit of knowing yourself that the, if the app is actually helping you develop better behaviours, great. But if it's starting to make you feel anxious, perhaps put it aside. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Catherine Robson, who is our high-performing non-executive director, angel investor and entrepreneur, and our scientific expert, Dr. Siobhan Banks, neuroscientist and sleep researcher from the University of South Australia. Time for our final biohack. Have you heard of binaural beats? Can we train our brains to focus better by playing sound as we work? Dr. Hannah Kirk is a developmental neuroscientist from Monash University, Melbourne. Hello, Hannah. Hi. What are binaural beats? So binaural beats are a type of auditory beat stimulation. So binaural means relating to both ears. So binaural auditory beat stimulation occurs when two tones that slightly differ in their frequency are presented separately to each ear. Why would you do that? Uh, So essentially the information that is presented is then processed and combined in a way that's perceived as a single unified tone. And there is some evidence that suggests that exposure to these sound waves can affect brainwave patterns. So we're trying to get our brains into a certain frequency? Yeah, so the theory is that when we're exposed to sound waves at a certain frequency, the brainwaves then adjust to align with those frequencies. So in the case of binaural beats, it's thought that by exposing the brain to beats that create kind of a lower frequency tone perhaps in the brain, um, that these sound waves then then create a shift in brain waves so that they then generate slower frequency brain waves, which are related to things like sleep and relaxation. And so these, so you're saying that lower brain frequencies are the frequencies that we usually have when we're focusing on something at work? So lower frequencies are involved with things like sleep. Higher frequencies are involved with our attention and paying, you know, focusing and concentrating. So there's a lot of different types of binaural beats that kind of tap into these different frequencies. Um, so when binaural beats were first discovered, they tended to be used more for relaxation. Uh, and then in more recent years, there's beats that are now trying to improve focus and concentration. Who invented them? So they were invented by a physicist. Um, That guy was called Henrik Wilhelm Duff. And they were actually invented in 1839. Really? Yeah, and then they kind of... I feel a bit behind now. (laughs) Well, they kind of lay dormant for a a number of years, so around 130 years, until an American physicist actually published a paper um, that kind of re-sparked interest in binaural beats. Um, And then more recently, they've now been investigated as to their uses in terms of mental health, um, anxiety, and in terms of this cognition and mental states as well. So I'm really interested in cognition um, and performance at work. So what does the science say about binaural beats helping users to focus at work? So there's not a huge amount of research that looks at whether we see improvements in cognitive performance. So the majority of research is really looking at do we see these changes in brave wave patterns? So they're measured through EEG, um, and that's really just looking at different brainwave patterns um, and really seeing if we expose people to high-frequency sound waves, do we then see an increase in the frequency of the brainwaves? Um, that research is relatively inconsistent, um, and obviously that's a concern because that's really the mechanism by which we'd expect to see changes in terms of cognition or your performance at work. 
Um, in terms of the cognitive assessments, like I said, very few have actually looked at whether we see improvements in cognitive performance um, while you're using binaural beats or after using binaural beats as well. Um, there's been a couple of studies that have investigated if we see improvements in attention and they show that there is no improvement after using binaural beats. Um, there's also a couple of studies that have looked at children who have ADHD, so kids that we know have impairments in attention abilities, and there's been no improvement in reducing inattentional hyperactivity in those kids. What about the difference between using binaural beats and something like white noise? So there's been a lot of studies that look at the impact of white noise and music, and it seems to be that there is no evidence that binaural beats would be having any greater benefits than just listening to white noise or music. So it's possible that there can be a reduction in things like anxiety um, and feeling more relaxed, but it's likely that it's more due to the fact that you're taking time out of your busy day to sit for a period <laughs> of time um, and also reducing distractions that are going on around you as well. So those are probably the factors that are actually potentially helping you to feel better. So. It's more about blocking out the noise than the noise that you put in your head. Yeah, <laughs> Is that what I'm hearing? Potentially, or using that noise to essentially block out other noise. So, Hannah, binaural beats for focus to optimise performance at work, pass or fail? Well, you can test it yourself next time you're at work and see if it helps. Really, the science is out on this one at the moment. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr Hannah Kirk, a developmental neuroscientist from Monash University, Melbourne. This episode of This Working Life was produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.